Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, proud member of the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Goodwin, here with my co-host and your fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. On this episode, we are joined by Chris Towers of CBS Sports, flipping our script a bit to begin with a very important conversation about the culture of sports in general, and more specifically, Major League Baseball. We will also talk about Chris's analytical process, music versus sports, and late bedtimes. This truly is a conversation with an important voice in the industry, so without further ado, here it is. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us. How you doing? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. We're, uh, we're super jazzed to have you. Uh, this you. is uh, it's like a big deal for our pod. Um, Alex, how are you doing down there in D.C.? You know, I am I'm doing my best. Oh, that, that's, uh, that's how I'll put it today. I am doing my best. Okay. What, what exactly does your best look like, Alexander? Oh, I just had a class finish up, so I've been like fully f- teaching from home for like the whole week, which means that like I haven't like had to wake up at six a.m. and I feel like my body has like abandoned me because I'm not like up and doing diligent things. So here I am. I was able to sleep <laughs> in today, and I'm tired. Yeah, Maybe tired because you were able to evil. sleep in. This is evil. Yeah, it I, seems uh, backwards, I, right? I don't understand what six a.m. is. <laughs> Unless if, if I'm ever up. up at six a.m., it's the opposite direction. <laughs> I. I I kind of made like a like college. I never went to sleep before like four a.m. Oh whole yeah, time yeah, yeah. I was in college, and yeah. then I used to work nights when I started at CBS. So I was getting home at like two thirty three in the morning, mm-hmm. and then for like three years, I did become something of a morning person. Uh, and then the last like year and a half, I've completely backslid. And I there's like one night a week where I just pass out completely at like eleven, and my wife gets annoyed. Um, <laughs> But other than that, because I'm a heavy snorer, that's the reason she gets mm. Um Other than that, I'm, I'm, yeah, like I'm a 3 a.m. to, you know, waking up at 11 kind of guy. You're in the uh, right corner of the world for that, the city that never sleeps there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah my life is, uh, is very, very regimented usually, but that's because of the two little ones that uh, no matter what time you want them to wake up in the morning, they wake up when they want to wake up. Yeah. You know, um, I did this really evil thing to myself. I can use that word again because it feels right. Um, <laughs> but my senior year of college, I was the editor of my college paper. And uh, I would, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know how that works. You know, you, you stop and you print and you put everything mm-hmm. online by like one thirty, and then you stay up for another two hours playing FIFA. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but as soon as that job ended and I needed to find something else for like for the summer, uh, I ended up getting a job uh, at some point at a coffee shop and I would open. So I went oh, from, no. you know, being yeah. up until three or whatever. And then I suddenly had to like wake up and be at work at five 30. Um, and the human body is a very resilient thing when you abuse it. I've learned. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But there were limits. Sounds like you found them. They tested them a little bit. <laughs> 3 a.m. became a pivot point in your life, right? Up until or getting up at. It really helped that I, I lived like uh, across the street from that coffee shop, but uh, yeah. and also yeah, that they had coffee there at that time of day. Sure, sure. Oh, <laughs> interesting! But you had to make it. What I would do is I would I would um, run the timer to test how long it took our espresso to like pull because you need to adjust that sometimes. So I would have like four shots of espresso. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just had to to test it, right? Just to, just to test it. Uh, well, before this becomes a pod all about uh, espresso and coffee, um, I'd, uh, we can move into our, our bell ringer here. And Chris, I couldn't have you on without talking to you about this. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you to a decision here. Um, yeah. Now, 
I know that you do sports for a living. So we're going to just put that on a shelf for a second because that would obviously kind of skew the results here. But if you had to give up sports or music, which one would you go with? Which one would it be for you? Uh, <laughs> it's like Sophie's choice. I, I think I would have to give up sports. Yeah. Um, as you know, sports is an important part of my life, obviously. Right. Right. Um, you know, even, you know, without like the fact that I write about sports and, and get paid to talk about sports for a living, like, you know, obviously I've always been a sports guy. I've always been, you know, I was the, I was the kid when I was seven years old who was like reading the sports almanac and like learning, you know, old <laughs> yeah. baseball records and stuff like that. Um, but I am probably more passionate about music than I am about sports. And that feels a little weird to admit, but <laughs> you know, like a big part of why my wife and I moved to New York, uh, New York city about a year and a half, well, almost two years ago now, um, you know, COVID has kind of warped yeah, the, sure. the way that feels, but a big part of that was just that there's so much live music and there's so much to do. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was like my whole life. It's been sports and music have been like my my two biggest passions. But sure. I think I could, I think I could get along without sports as a spectator more than I could get along without music. <laughs> what's uh, what's the uh, album du jour? What's the what, what's in the are on you, you? You're a vinyl guy, right? So what's on the turntable? Um, well, not on the turntable yet, although if they release it on vinyl, I will definitely buy it. <laughs> but I, my brain has been hijacked and my life has been ruined by <laughs> Bo Burnham's Inside, the oh, Netflix yeah. comedy special. <laughs> oh, I listened, I've, I've watched it probably five times mm -hmm. um, and I've listened to the soundtrack on average, probably more than once a day since it dropped on Spotify. It just... Uh, I think it's probably if it's if not that it's probably Olivia Rodrigo's album are probably my two favorite albums of the year. Um, but inside has been like an unhealthy obsession for me. <laughs> it, it just like it. It's the first piece of art that fully captures what going through the pandemic actually was like mm. uh, for me, at least. I yeah, don't know yeah. if everybody else felt like they were constantly on the edge of a nervous breakdown at all times but uh that was definitely how i experienced it sure and, um, yeah yeah no it's it's unhealthy my <laughs> my obsession with it now, you can pass on this question if you if you like but um roughly how old were you when uh you first discovered uh bo burnham as like an online person so i've actually never been a i'm 33 but I've never really been a Bo Burnham guy before this. Um, just cause like everything that I saw was like, it just felt very like too clever by half and very like kind of snotty and like hmm. very shallow. And I, that may not be a fair interpretation, but that was just the, the vibe I got was like, Oh, I don't, I don't really, this isn't for me. I don't really need this. And I've actually gone back and watched his previous special and it's very good. I definitely mm. did not give him enough credit, but uh, no, I had never really uh, watched anything by him for more than, you know, maybe a minute until I watched that special and then got hooked. It, yeah. yeah he he is four years older than me. 
Um, so mm. a lot of his earliest YouTube work when he's like 17, I was yeah. the target audience at age sure. 13, to be clear. <laughs> uh, so it's really, really strange for me for someone like him to have very literally grown up into the person that I feel like is the only person I want to try to make pandemic art. Yeah. I'm very okay with everyone else just not trying personally. Um, I, I think he perfected it. Yeah. Like I, I really do think like I'm not exaggerating when I think that it just like, you know, obviously again, everyone's experiences were different and we all go through different internal journeys, but like it just, it so perfectly captures like everything that i was feeling um throughout the whole thing and uh it's it's i don't know i i can't even like it's such a mature version of comedy and it's so like thoughtful and it's both general and very very specific Mm -hmm. and like white woman's instagram is you know (laughs) one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my life my (laughs) wife and i were literally crying while watching that and it's because like there's a very general type of person who he's lampooning there. And we all know what that is. Um, But then there are very specific details that like, I don't know if I've ever seen a woman in a unicorn outfit, like eating cake or whatever, like the one (laughs) thing that's in there. But like, it feels like I have definitely seen that before. But then also like, that song could be really mean and it comes off that way kind of, but then there's the point in the middle of it. Uh, and I, I assume you didn't want to go 10 minutes on ah, Burnham to start okay. the show, but <laughs> there's a point in the middle of it where it like the, the perspective on the video shifts from the, the tall square to, you know, a, a more widescreen format. And she starts talking about like her mother who passed away. And it like, it, it, it then kind of stops you in your tracks yeah. and you're like, oh yeah this is like this person who we're parodying and we're all making fun of and who like society has deemed frivolous and and sort of unnecessary is also like just a real person who goes through stuff and they're trying to find joy in, in their lives right. and it's performative like it's it's just like it leads you down that path you think it's going one way it goes another and makes exactly it, makes yeah, it really kind of pulls point. the rug out from under you yeah well, I, I, we can segue into, because I think this is actually quite perfect, into the first thing we want to talk about. We've, we flipped the script here a little bit. We usually do our off-the-book segment uh, towards the end of the show. We're going to start with it. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the, the topic that I kind of want to get into is kind of like uh, sports culture and, and all of that. And I think that um, even though, no, we weren't planning on doing a bunch of uh, time on, on Bo Burnham off the top of the show, I think it's, <laughs> it's a great move in because... I, I do think that this COVID experience has has caused us to focus on some things and and um, reflect on some things and and some of that is the culture of sports and sports analysis and and the way that um, people communicate and talk to each other the expectations we have our behaviors um, the things that matter to us so uh, I'd I'd like to kind of move into that and and just at the very beginning just say I I really appreciate you as a voice in the space. Um, talking about these types of things because I think more people need to be doing that. I think there's a lot of people that uh, you're reaching and, and you're making a big difference with in terms of just talking about how things hit and, and it's, it's okay to, to have feelings about these things. And um, you know, the, the behavior of some of these people that historically has been kind of categorized as powerful and, and manly is, mm-hmm. is toxic and bad. 
Um, and so uh, I, I think that's a really important conversation for us to have. And it's a really difficult spot on social media to try and carve out a space there because it is so easy to sit behind a keyboard or a phone and fire things off uh, uh, at people. And uh, you're putting yourself out there, but I think in such an important way. So I appreciate that very much. I know that there are people in my life and in my sphere that appreciate that very much. Uh, so let's, let's maybe back out a little bit. One of the advantages of having, having you on is that you're not just a baseball analyst. You're a multi-sports guy. So like, what are some of the, the good things and the not so good things that are happening in in sports culture overall right now, uh, at least from your point of view? Yeah. In terms of the good things, you know, I think this is true of, you know, society more broadly, you know, in recent years, especially as there has been more of a focus on representation and diversity and Mm -hmm. the need to hear more voices and and to be more inclusive. And, you know, a lot of the stuff, you know, like in the fantasy space, there are a lot of people who think that the change from auction to salary cap draft was this like silly frivolous thing. And I, I can understand the, where that comes from. Like it doesn't seem like it matters. We all understand that it's not actually an auction of people. Right. But it's still like, it still leads to there's the famous ESPN segment where they were literally auctioning off like cardboard cutouts of players. Yeah. And it was like literally people standing around like a real life auction. It was just like, that was clearly something where there were just, there were no different voices in the room to say, right. Hey guys, we shouldn't do this. And so, yeah. you know, I, I think the, the fact that, people are more consciously, you know, looking to be more inclusive and, and, you know, to hire more diverse verses is an important thing that's happening in sports, not just because, you know, not just because it's fair and because it's right and because it needs to happen on those grounds, but also Mm. because it makes your products better. Yeah. Like you, you, when you have a bunch of people coming from the same background and having the same you know, or very similar viewpoints. And, you know, it's primarily, uh, you know, middle-class or upper-middle-class white college-educated men, you're going to have a a pretty narrow range of experiences and you're going to have, um, you know, blind spots. And it's not to say that there's something wrong with being a white upper-middle-class college-educated man in sports. I am one of those. Um, Yep, right. (laughs) But it's to say that, yeah. When that's all there is, you're you're missing perspectives and you're missing views about sports and sports culture that are um, that are important and that are represented in the audience, but Absolutely. not in the the content that we're creating as an industry. So I think that you know companies and outlets have been kind of dragged, kicking and screaming in certain ways into recognizing that mm-hmm. and making. Uh, conscious efforts rather than just, you know, it's not going to be enough to just say, oh, we're not biased. You have to consciously decide to include more voices. And I think that's happening more often. So that's a good thing. Yes. Um, You know, um, I feel like one of the interesting moments that really kind of summed up a lot of the ways I feel like that's happening is like a like last May, no, last May. No, this is much more recent. This God, time is fake. Um, this May, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, yeah. uh, my buddy Akshay, who's the social media editor at Yahoo Sports, actually, uh, he and I worked at the 
UT paper at the same time. Mm. Uh, got to put out this piece about how um, Akshay Bhatia is a professional golfer. I don't know anything about golf. Is uh, mm. like the only professional athlete to have the same first name as him and how mm-hmm. exciting mm-hmm. and cool that is as a person to be able to feel like, yes, that's my dude. Uh, and I think, you know, beyond like the, the way that like we can just think of like, yeah, it's cool to have someone to root for that is like, you yeah. can see yourself onto, you know, like as a kid, I had people who would like call me a rod and I hated Alex Rodriguez as a kid because <laughs> I had taste or whatever. Um, and you know, it, it's just not the same. Right. And it's kind of helped me realize that like part of the reason why some of the stuff's so important is that the way that we consume sports is ref- reflected in like what we end up saying and and all that yeah. you know like you know like the the sports view that i got was basically like the um baseball that my dad enjoyed and whatever else and like you know the more people you have that aren't just getting that passed down version of a product mm-hmm. the more interesting stuff you're gonna have to be able to say about you know like i don't know tony larusa doing weird things with his team or <laughs> fernando tatis swinging 3-0 so um yeah, yeah. and it's and helped one of the to things, like that. yeah, one of the things that I think about a lot um, is, you know, the way that like even Major League Baseball, which has had a significant uh, Latino uh, presence for, you know, 50 years at least. Yeah. I mean, Roberto Clemente was a superstar in the 1960s, Monte Irvin before him. Um you know, I, my my family's from Puerto Rico, and my my wife's family's from Venezuela, and so, um, you know, that was that's something I've always been keenly aware of. And like Roberto Clemente, my dad's from Pittsburgh, my mom's from Puerto Rico. Roberto Clemente was God in our house. Yeah, <laughs> like we didn't go to church, but Roberto Clemente was God. Yeah, um, and so I read a ton of books about Roberto Clemente as a kid. I was always super interested in him. And one of the things that I always remembered was that, um pittsburgh sports reporters in the 1960s would like call him bob yeah he was bob clemente early on in his career and he finally and he you know was viewed as this like very mercurial and very aloof player because of the language barrier Mm -hmm. because he didn't speak english well and he got better throughout his career and he always you know always insisted on you know speaking English so that he could, you know, express himself, but that led to him being misunderstood. And right. so there were all these little, like, just little ways that people talked about him um, that you still see, you know, right. it's becoming less rare. But I remember um, when Yasiel Puig, who, you know, there are much more valid reasons to dislike Yasiel Puig <laughs> now than there were when <laughs> right. he was, uh, you know, a lightning rod for criticism with the Dodgers. But there was a lot like Don Mattingly would accuse him of faking injuries. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember which. There was some national baseball columnist who wrote this whole column about how like every time he strikes out, he starts grimacing. But when he hits a home run, he looks great. And it was like all just like, oh, he fakes injuries when he's not playing well kind of stuff. Um, yeah. That like that is what Roberto Clemente dealt with when he was uh you know, playing early on in his career, especially in Pittsburgh, like eventually he was, his greatness was so undeniable that, you know, things turned around, but like one, it shouldn't have required that. And two, you know, he was always, he was always accused of like, uh, you know, overplaying his injuries or, you know, cause he couldn't exactly tell the reporters like what it was that was hurt. 
And so they would always be like, oh, it's just some minor thing. He just, and, you know, to see that happening in like 2012 and 2013, you know, yeah. because that was something that growing up, you know, with Puerto Rican family, growing up as a big fan of Roberto Clemente, that's the kind of thing that like I was keenly aware of that I didn't see people talking about. And so, you know, that's where, you know, having those, that, that diversity of perspectives and diversity of voices actually matters. Um, God, there's another one I'll never forget. Bill Plaschke, when Vladimir Guerrero was with the Angels, referred to him, he had a bad playoff series, and he mm-hmm. referred to him as a, quote, childlike hitting savant. Hmm. I'm not joking. That is literally what he wrote in the LA Times or whatever, um, which, which is just like... Yeah. Unbelievably offensive. Yeah. Demeaning. And it's just like, yeah, because yeah. he can't speak English and he doesn't like talk to you. And, and you know, one of the bad things or not so good things happening in sports culture right now and really over the last few years. But, you know, I think we're seeing the culmination of it is a, a very good example in, in Trevor Bauer. Yeah. And the way he was so, so regularly given uncritical coverage by sports writers who you know, I, I think the, you know, not to pathologize too much, but I, who I think clearly saw themselves in him mm. and could relate to him as a, like, not this, you know, crazy muscle bound, super athletic guy. He's a, you know, a college educated white dude, but he's not from the South because a lot of sports writers can't really, you know, yeah, right, right. Um, the culture you know, culturally it's, vibe with yeah. that. And, and so there was definitely a lot of super unskeptical coverage of the way he talked about himself and, and the way he presented himself. And, you know, obviously there were a ton of voices in baseball who were screaming like this guy, there are, there are clearly issues with the way he approaches, you know, women, especially, yeah. um, but you know, even, you know, at times minorities and, that was largely overlooked and there was a lot of just kind of fawning coverage over this guy Yeah, because he was the kind of person who built this myth that I shouldn't be in major league baseball and I'm only here because of my hard work and my dedication and my, my brilliance, you know, my brilliant. Yeah, right. Mind. Right. And like, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a story that sports writers helped him tell. Exactly. And that's not to say there's nothing there. Like Trevor Bauer's not a good athlete. Like that, that dude can't like, I'm almost, I, I would bet Trevor Bauer cannot dunk a basketball, <laughs> but like one it's pitching and that's not the type of athleticism you need anyway. And also like he is, he spent years building this myth because he's selling himself and he's selling a product right, right. for things that he's invested in. And for years, sports writers just totally uncritically, like basically served as PR arms for, uh, you know, the Trevor Bauer enterprises. And so I think that's one of the ways in which, you know, that lack of diversity clearly impacted um, people's ability or willingness to look at a whole picture. Sure. I mean, when, when people are watching sports, um, I, I think that a lot of times it's easy for us to think I'm just watching this this game happen. I, I like 
I can form my own opinions and I have my own ideas and nobody's kind of interfering with that. But there's a lot of stuff happening in terms of broadcasts and writing and coverage and all of those things that are are driven by decisions that are not being made on camera or in the light where people are seeing that. And that's absolutely driving the narratives and, um, you know, which direction we take this story, what story we tell, um, how we tell it. And, and so I think that whether it's, it's people from the South that don't drive with Northern reporters or whether it's, it's uh, a single kind of voice trying to, to tell the story of, of uh, somebody coming up from, uh, you know, South America who just doesn't understand the culture um, and, and hasn't tried to, these, these cultural um, clashes are never really benefiting the people who are not kind of fitting into the existing mold. And uh, taking the time and putting it in the energy to change that mold, uh, even like uh, the bat flip thing. And I'm going to be fully transparent. I was uh, very guilty of this early on, you know, the bat flip thing. I was like, man, that, that, that's kind of like showing up the pitcher. And I get why these guys are upset. And, um, you know, I don't know if throwing the baseball at their head is the right way to go about it, but I kind of understand it. And I mean, I, I, I thought <laughs> it I sounds did. so funny and when you say it that way. I, but I, I, yeah, I, 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 when you really peel back the layers, you understand that these things are not done in intentionally to be disrespectful. They're not done mm-hmm. to try and show up the pitcher. This is the culture of the game that these people have, have come up playing and, um, you know, it's, it's not like MLB is doing this great job of educating the existing player pool on the cultures of all these people they're going and cultivating. And, and quite honestly, in a lot of cases, and I'll just use the word, uh, uh, being exploitative with, with a lot of these oh, players yeah. and throwing tons of cash at them and not helping them understand how to spend it or do anything with it. Or, um, it, they're not carving a space for them to fit in. And, uh, but yet they're, they're itching to go grab them and bring them into this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's money to be made. So, um, uh, you know, as much as like the, the let the kids play thing, like, okay, it kind of felt like a step in the right direction. Uh, it, then they kind of go right back to the whole exploitative model that baseball has been built on from the very, very beginning. Um, yeah. So I, I, I hear a lot of uh, of the things that you're talking about kind of resonate with me in terms of that. And, and I fell victim to it because it was what I knew, right? It was, well, this is baseball. And and like when you come into baseball, you should do the baseball thing instead of really understanding the baseball thing needs to change to accommodate for the fact that there's a lot of different kinds of baseball players uh, and there needs to be a broader education on what that sort of thing means and, and what that does for the game. Now, I feel like the way that I've kind of like encountered a lot of like the people trying to be serious about baseball got kind of completely broken for me at about age 10 when this uh screaming parent pulled uh his son off of an opposing team while i was sitting out there in left field uh because his uh coach told him he was going to bunt because they were up 12 runs because my team was bad um <laughs> and it became very obvious kind of like very early on for me that a lot of this stuff was uh not really about any sort of tradition or culture but just you know, a whole lot of people who are very, very, very scared that even for a second, their their own insular and singular geniuses like historians of the game, blah, 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 might be uh, might be threatened. And um, I don't know, there's, there's a certain part of it. There's a certain part of it that if you have enough remove and you'd recognize that um, 
a lot of the backlash that you're seeing from people because that's really what it is it's backlash from people who are, like, see that they're not actually that good at things who are being removed from roles it's i don't i don't think there's anyone that needs to um teach a lot of these players how to be part of the culture if they're setting it themselves uh but you know it, we give a lot of them credence because you don't have to give it to them a lot of people just continue to have insert position wherever else so they kind of get to exert influence and yeah, I, I like think institutional inertia yeah, yeah exactly exactly, exactly. Right. Yep. so um i think one of the better things about what's kind of happened kind of by force since the beginning of last season is that um without much else to focus on if anything can generate a headline uh last august we were going to pay attention it really helped i think <laughs> that we were bored um that we were been willing mm. to look at a lot of these things as critically as we have been um and it also really, really helps <laughs> that like pretty much everyone fun and exciting in uh, baseball right now um, does not look like a member of uh, the 1950 uh, New York Yankees right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I-, I think that there is a certain amount of reckoning that um, you do not have to uh, know all of the Almanac stuff. Um, because your dad taught it to you in that sort of way sure. in order to enjoy this sport. Uh, yeah. You know. A lot of my love and, for it did not come because of that stuff necessarily. And there's nothing wrong with like Mike Trout being a great example of, you know, maybe the best baseball player ever. Right. Certainly like inner circle on the short list for best baseball players ever it has zero personality. <laughs> and that's fine. Sure. Like it's not to say that like putting your head down and, and, you know, jogging after you hit a home run is the wrong way to play. Right. It's that it's, it's just not way. the way. It's not the way exactly. to play. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. There's space and room for people to play the game in ways that match their personalities rather than them feeling the need to change their personalities to match some sort of strange old world construct of what it's supposed to look like and be uh, like, I would like to ask this question because I, uh, I am not as much of a, a connoisseur of uh, like basketball and things like that. So the other mm-hmm. sports that are out there, are, are you seeing similar issues or problems? Is there anything that, that MLB could be learning from the ways that some of the other leagues might be addressing some of these issues and problems? Is there anything that MLB is doing well that other leagues could learn from what they're doing? Um, I, I think, you know, to a certain extent, especially over the last year plus, there's been a lot of very similar, um, and I think it would be fair to say like performative, uh, wokeness from professional sports. And I, I hate to use that term because it's so often deployed in bad faith, but in this case, you're, you know, you're talking about, uh, billion dollar multinational corporations so i think it probably sticks more often than yeah it does when you try to apply it to some person on twitter just because you don't like them um yeah and you know i think we've seen that there was a a very shallow dedication to a lot of the you know issues surrounding race and and equality and and uh you know even when we talk about like you know there i i as someone who follows a lot of sports, I remember a lot of baseball people being very smug about mm. not being football fans because the NFL, you know, had this track record through like Ray Rice and the the way that he wasn't suspended until the video right. came out and um, Adrian Peterson. And, and there was very much a like, well, at least I don't root for the NFL. 
Mm. And it was like, well, Bobby Cox is was beloved, universally beloved. Uh, and he had a domestic violence arrest right in his career as a manager, like not like at the end of his career. It was in like the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, baseball, just as much as any other sport, turned a blind eye sure. to violence against women. And, um, you know, uh, so that that that's one of the things that like I think that's just a you know it it's often portrayed as like a this is a sports issue or this is a specific sport issue mm-hmm. and it's just a cultural issue it's a, it's an like violence against women is a thing that we just don't take seriously historically as a culture um as far as like things that baseball could learn from other sports um you know, I, I think a lot of that gets into more of like the financial stuff. You know, yeah, I think yeah, baseball yeah. just has a much more adversarial uh, financial situation between labor and management slash ownership in a way that is sort of just a result of the fact that they don't have a salary cap mm-hmm. and it's harder to enforce minimum spending when you don't have a salary cap. And so, you know, you have... In the NBA, you have a salary floor and a salary cap. And right. You can go above the salary cap and you can go below below the salary floor. But the important thing about the NBA salary floor is if you do not hit the salary floor, whatever amount of money you were short by gets distributed around among the rest of your players. And mm-hmm. that is, there are still ways to get, get around that, um, you know, because it's based on your final cap number and not the actual amount of money you spent so technically the philadelphia 76ers did this a couple years ago where they were below the cap floor they picked up a player who had like a 12 million dollar salary but he was only owed 2 million it got them to the floor and they ended up just being able to pocket 10 million dollars um but at least in theory the nba the nfl um and the nhl i assume i don't really know much about the nhl's financials but they, they, at least the NFL and NBA, I will speak on the two that I know for sure, have ways to enforce, one, a minimum of the sports-related income, which is a, a vague term that baseball also uses that, you know, is, I think, kind of uh, an unfair way to, to look at things, but at least a minimum of that, a minimum of that agreed-upon uh, amount has to go to the players every year, and, and the you know, it's it's independently audited and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas baseball, you know, you don't have to. You can, you know, baseball, if if the owners were able to efficiently spend their their salaries in a way that only 30% of baseball-related income went to the players, as far as I know, there is no mechanism by which players could, um, you know, argue against that or, right, you right. know, you know, redress their their shortcomings unless they're, you know, negotiating a CBA. And so I think and baseball as an institution should probably, in terms of their long-term health, find a way to create a less adversarial relationship between yeah. management and labor. But I also, I don't think that's a labor problem. I think it's a management problem and a, and a league structure problem. Mm. And, um, you know, because there was this understanding 
that was sort of unspoken, but everybody agreed that players were underpaid to start their careers, and then they get overpaid at the end to make up for the fact that they were underpaid. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like everybody got overpaid at the end. Right. Most, the vast majority of players were underpaid for their entire careers because most of them never got to the yeah, the end of the six or seven years land. of arbitration. Right. And then your Miguel Cabreras, your Joey Votto's would get quote unquote overpaid for their twilight years. And, you know, your mid-level free agents would get overpaid for three or four seasons. And that was, that was the way that the system worked. And that was a, an understanding that was for the most part workable for everyone. Obviously I think there were a lot of players who got left out of that deal, but at least it, it made sense and it was what everyone operated under. You know, that was, that was the understanding everyone had. And then I think the players association failed to read the, the tea leaves Mm -hmm. and didn't see the fact that teams were moving towards a much more business oriented approach to salaries and a much more efficiency driven approach to salaries, which, you know, logically makes sense from the team perspective, but it screwed over a lot of players. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like this is an area that I probably want to do more reading on, but uh, I'm essentially like loosely quoting uh like the tipping pitches podcast when i say like my understanding of their most recent uh contract negotiations with their highest priorities are like better food in the clubhouse yeah 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 like better food on the clubhouse an extra bus uh <laughs> traveling from to and from the stadium so they had more space like they they you know they weren't particularly contentious negotiations from what i remember um you know that they are going to be now. Right, yeah. right. And I and think... Can got kicked down the road. Yeah. yeah, and I think baseball faces some legitimate existential crises as a result of this. You know, I don't think it's going to, like, ruin the game, but there are definitely issues with Major League Baseball that need to be addressed, and I don't know how you address them uh, given the relationship with tw- between labor and ownership and the league itself yeah it's like they've created their own internal bubble right and it's going to burst and what's it going to look like on the other side yep now i want to kind of like turn this conversation just slightly on its side back towards people like us because uh i don't think there's Mm -hmm. a whole lot of disagreement here about um sure what i want uh the major league baseball uh, players association to do whenever uh, there are contract uh, negotiations in the future i have actually have some faith uh francisco lindor recently like got a leadership position i'm, I'm pretty hopeful things mm-hmm. are going to change uh i do kind of consistently feel like i'm yelling into the void though when i say that like people who are in our shoes basically have to be voiced in this sort of stuff to be able to accurately cover things and i'm kind of curious from the point of view of someone who kind of does come into a contact with a whole lot more people who are kind of adjacent to sports media, whether or not mm-hmm. like what kind of like, do you feel like that's the case? But more, more importantly, like what sort of stuff do we need to collectively be doing to make sure that casual fans kind of can see the game for what it is more accurately and like how we fix kind of like some of the sort of problems where the conversation just inevitably be, ends up being only the part where some players are overpaid and not the other parts of things. Yeah. I don't know exactly how you, you bridge that with the, you know, quote unquote average fan. Um, because I think for a lot of reasons, your median 
major league baseball fan is a you know 52 year old white man just based on the demographics of who watches the game that's it maybe it's a little lower but you know that that's probably true and so you're there are a lot of things that go into the fact that, that those that the people who watch sports and specifically major league baseball are just kind of by default always going to um you know see themselves more in the management types mm-hmm. than the than the players uh just for the same reasons that you know baseball journalists are going to see themselves more in Trevor Bauer than Francisco Lindor sure um and you know, you can change that in baseball coverage and sports coverage by hiring different people. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah, you, yeah. you can't exactly. I uh, think it's change. also hard to for somebody who makes, let's say, thirty eight or fifty three thousand dollars a year in Middle America, to look at somebody who's making six, seven, eight million dollars and and reconcile underpaid from their their point yeah. of view, right? And, and I'm not saying that the, that it's the, the, those players are not underpaid in terms of their value and the market share and the billionaire owners and all of that, but I think there's like a, a dissonance there with people sometimes who are like, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm busting my butt every single day for 50 mm-hmm. grand. This guy's making 9 million for a bunch of years. Like I, I'm, and you want me to f- have sympathy for that person and learn yeah. a whole bunch of, of information about why I should have sympathy with that person. I think that can be a tough nut to crack too. Yeah. There's, there's functionally no difference for most people in the amount of money that Fernando Tatis is worth based on his contract. And the amount of money that I can't remember the people who own the the Padres uh, learners is that their names I can't remember but you know, what like they're that's worth. An whatever it is who hasn't been own, like outwardly evil enough for me to learn their name as as quickly as I probably would a few of the other yeah I, I someone was someone mentioned them recently in a conversation I was having but you know for for most people there is functionally no difference between the amount of money Mike Trout makes and the amount of money that the people who run the angels make. It right. Just, right. It's, it doesn't, it wouldn't, the marginal difference between, uh, you know, Mike Trout making $37 million a year and Mike Trout making $27 million a year or even $17 million a year. He's clearly worth more than that. But the, the marginal impact of those dollars just doesn't mean anything to most people. Right. And so it's, I, I think you're always going to have a situation where, uh, it the your 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 median fan is going to, you know, have trouble um, seeing themselves from a player's perspective, and you know how do you change that? I, I don't know how you change that from you know the top down, other than talking about it and you know trying to you know be be clear about what is at play, which is not is Mike Trout overpaid relative to a teacher. But is Mike, but making people, helping people realize that it's not Mike Trout gets paid 35 million or Mike Trout gets paid 30 million and your tickets are cheaper or that money. It's either Mike Trout gets 30 million or he gets 35 million. And if he gets 30 million, that's 5 million more for the owner. Right. right, That's ultimately, I think like, just in the clearest terms possible when people talk about this stuff, those are the stakes that people should be should be mentioning. It's not payroll flexibility. It's not... Uh, that plays you know, into the hands of the teams, right? When, when the conversation right. goes there. Right, but it's, it's just... 
when the Nationals didn't sign Bryce Harper, the Nationals just pocketed more revenue. Right. You know, they did not go out and spend 30 extra. I mean, I guess they signed Patrick Corbin and, but like, <laughs> you know, for the most part, they could have done both of those things. It's not like that freed them up. It's not like, you know, the Marlins tearing their team down after, you know, having a hundred million dollar payroll for three years in a row, tearing their team down to 25 million for three years. It's not like all of a sudden they have $225 million to play with that they're going to reinvest into the team. Right. It's, it's that not, money's gone. It's not like Artie Moreno is going to spend the money that he would spend on Shohei Otani's contract. If the angels don't sign Shohei Otani again, necessarily, right. They can just yeah, pocket that and be bad. Yeah. Or right. like a and giveaway so, day where you just go up and you get, instead of a bobblehead, it's a hundred dollar bill. Like that stuff, yeah. stuff's not <laughs> happening. Yeah. That's, and, and I think there's a romanticized vision of sports as like civic institution that, was true when the you know when like george steinbrenner ran bought the yankees for a million dollars and ran them you know micromanaged every aspect of the team it was true when like the cubs were owned by you know one family that wasn't the ricketts uh but you know just like a, a local family that wasn't like outrageously wealthy you know that that, that there was a change from you know, and I think we're seeing an, an additional change from one, you know, teams as sort of de facto civic institutions who were generally owned and run by people who lived in the cities and were invested um, in that to one being purchased by just kind of individual billionaires, which I think has been the, the kind of last 20 to 30 years of it. And now uh, as someone with a, who has worked at a newspaper uh, in the past um, being purchased by like equity funds, Mm -hmm. which is something we're seeing more of in sports. I think the Philadelphia 76ers were purchased by an equity fund. Um, And, you know, you, you start to move away from sports as civic institution to sports as profit driven enterprise in a way that was, you know, has always been true to a certain extent, but, now that's the primary focus. Yeah. Now it's not, can I win while making money? It's, can I make money and find a way to win? You it, know, what's and, the most amount don't, of money? Eh. Yeah, right. like that's, yeah. yeah. Like, what's the most amount of money I can make? Will winning help me make more money? Um, And because, you know, it's it's a lot about short-term, uh, you know, it's it's become more driven, I think, by short-term profits than, you know, long-term valuations or, you know, just kind of this is the thing that you you have that, you know, as long as it makes money, you're good. And, you know, I, I don't want to be guilty of, like, creating a, a rosy past that didn't mm-hmm. exist. You know, I think to a certain extent, these factors have always been at play. And, you know, I, I is it Connie Mack? Was he the Philadelphia Athletics guy who like did all kinds of weird like stunts and and stuff like that? You know, there <laughs> there have so, certainly yeah. been. I think the Washington Senators were an example of a team that just like was very much run in in search of the profit motive for a long time. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily an all new thing, but I do think it's an an accelerating thing that has Exacerbated changed. Exacerbated uh, too. It's like to an yeah. nth degree, right? At this point. Um, yeah. let's, let's take the conversation a little bit more back to baseball itself, because I think sure. that, um, 
Um, the on the field stuff is where we still get so excited about things. And I, 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 I think that, that stuff, that conversation <laughs> that we just had yeah. uh, from the culture and, and the things that need to shift and change to the behind the scenes elements are, are so important to talk about, but I can't let you go without talking uh, a little actual, uh, you know, pitching, hitting uh, stats process and evaluation and analysis of players and uh, especially like kind of going into a season and reflecting back on things. So we've, uh, we've gone long here talking about all that other stuff, but uh, we, if we can get maybe another 15, 20 minutes here to just talk yeah. about um, some players, your process, uh, especially uh, like what is it that speaks to you in terms of data when you're going to look for what uh, what's going to happen with this guy, or where you're going to kind of plant your flag for the next season? Um, what is what is it that you're looking for in hitters? What is it that you're looking for in pitchers? Are there stats that you think are maybe kind of like yeah, they're great for a tweet, but um, <laughs> uh, you know I, I, maybe not so much in trying to figure out what's really going to happen? Uh, what's your process like, and and maybe some players that that you think kind of show that process um, with their on the field stuff from this year? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the key tenets of my process and in a way that, you know, I think, um, you know, is at times a shortcoming in my evaluation process, but I think over the long run, um, you know, does make me a pretty good analyst is just, I, I tend not to, I actively try not to swing too hard one way or the other. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that, well, the the tendency in fantasy sports especially has always been to kind of overreact and i think mm-hmm. there is a you know a good reason for that you know there there is a um there's a a, a risk of not overreacting to a top prospect or a potential breakout you know if a player's on a hot streak because the the rewards are so much higher right and because you can always replace a player um but I do think there are situations where... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that, you can trace that directly to just like the increase of fantasy baseball is gambling because like you benefit a whole lot more from being a whole lot right a few bit, a very small yeah. amount of time when the goal is to win like out of hundreds of people. But when your yes. job is to be right on average, it's a different job. Yeah, and and I, I think some fantasy analysts look at themselves differently, and you know I think there are some fantasy fantasy analysts who definitely look at it from a gambling perspective. And when it comes to football, you know that is more how I view it, um, partially because there's so much less data for football, and right. it's so much harder to um, divine talent from uh, situation. And it's so hard to say, you know, is this player good or did he just have a good couple of weeks or, you know. You can't um, give it eight or nine games to figure it out because right. the season's like over. Yeah. Like we look at a full season in baseball, it's 162 games. And, and you know, if you're relatively well versed in, in you know, sabermetrics or analytics or however you want to phrase it these days, um, you know, we mostly understand that like even 162 games isn't that much. Yeah, uh, you know, it's certainly not enough to say with a high degree of certainty, like if every player, we just knew nothing about them heading into a season and all we knew was what they did that season, we would be really bad at knowing who the best and worst players in baseball were and how to value them. 
football is 16 games. That is <laughs> almost one-tenth. Uh, and so, you know, that, that you kind of do have to overreact just because you can't just say, well, this guy's going to figure it out. He's got this, you know, 300-game track record. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, by the time you have a 300-game track record, you're you're either Morton Anderson or you're retired. <laughs> so, right. um, but for baseball, you know, I do think you can – there is value to be found in keeping level. And, you know, there are so many statistics right now that we can get so granular with, you know, we're talking about like, not just like pitch level outcomes, but like the pitch level spin rate stuff and seems seam shifted wake and all these, like we have, you know, so many different ways that we can, dig down to a player's quote unquote true talent level. And so, you know, there is a tendency to think, um, you know, I think Zach Plezak is a great example of, of a player that I got right this year. Um, I was not high on Zach Plezak. I, I did end up kind of getting bullied into like having him as my 40th <laughs> starting pitcher. And even that was too high and it's not what I wanted to do. Um, but he was a player who made eight starts in 2020 he made eight starts against six different teams five different teams i think um that's nothing right <laughs> like that's that's just and so there were there were all these arguments about him in the offseason about oh like he got you know he got so much better at x y and z so you know his underlying talent level changed and i i think we we can sort of get lost in the weeds and miss or to, to use a different arboreal metaphor, we, we miss the forest for the trees when it comes to uh, a lot of our analysis. And, and this is just true of the fantasy community and I think baseball community in general. And it's definitely true of me. I do not want to say that I did not fall victim of this to this, but of thinking the idea of a player getting hot kind of no longer exists. And, you know, we we're so good at, you know, kind of figuring out what a player earned and what they didn't. Mm. And so we tend to think that like, oh, this player had an ex-WOBA of 440 in the month of April. He earned that. He didn't just get hot, you know, because <laughs> I think the the we went from like not understanding anything about what went into performance, really. Like just, you know, yeah. in the in the pre-sabermetric era, it was, you know, just a lot of like the blind leading the blind. Um and then we started to get more information and we started to get more understanding. We started to understand that like sometimes there are just weird things that happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a guy just gets, you know, two extra hits to land a, a week over the course of two months. And it didn't really change who he was. And we, right. we understood that as a baseball community. We understood that like they don't have control over everything. But then we started to get more and more data that shows that like actually he was hitting the ball much harder and he did have control over his results and he did earn all of those extra hits and all of those things can be true. But I think that, that there's been sort of a, you know, a, for, uh, I don't know what the right term is, but there's just been sort of a, we've, we've sort of lost the, the willingness to just say, well, sometimes things happen. Yeah. Right. Because we have so much information, we have so many answers and so much evidence that it's like, that's always been such an unsatisfying answer. Like he just got hot or he was cold or he wasn't locked in, like all these things that are totally unprovable and, but like still end up 
being the case, you know, right. it, like it's still, it's so easy to talk yourself into, wow, this player's changing. Uh, and sometimes guys just really are just hot in the like classic sense of he is just locked in, but he's still him. Yeah. Right. Just doing what he does really, really well right now. I mean, I think yeah. we all have that, right. And whatever profession we're in, we have good days and bad days. We have days where we're really sharp yeah. with our words and we have days where we, we aren't. Um, I think that we forget that these are people and that there are decisions being made and there are actions being taken. And, you know, uh, maybe that guy didn't get a lot of sleep last night and we're digging into, you know, uh, the rotation on his fastball and he, he slept for four hours before his start or hurt himself or, you know, whatever, has a blister on his toe because he played too much golf. I, there's there's a thousand things that, <laughs> yeah. that aren't going to be on that Fangraphs page that can go into it. And it's easy for us to look at them as, as uh, numbers, right, and kind of cogs in a machine. But they're people just like us. I mean, we, we come home from work and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not. And sometimes we're on our, our game and sometimes we're not. And um, we just don't have a bunch of people with with stat pages about our, <laughs> our our what we've done that day, analyzing and trying to dig into understanding all that. Alex, let me ask you a question: When you're trying to to reconcile, say, like narrative and data, what's something that you want to make sure you're looking for so that either you're not letting numbers tell you a story that you want it to tell you that might not be accurate, or um, to try and make sure that you're not looking at data that's fooling you, right? Chasing kind of like that fool's gold uh, with with looking at the wrong stuff. Now, you know, actually, I think that one of the things that comes to mind most when I hear Chris, you know, talk about like all the additional data allowing us to make conclusions is that I feel like very, very often uh, we are making uh, twice as many conclusions as we probably are allowed to based off the data in front of us. Because we're so excited about how much we have. You know, we love our forest. We love our weeds. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think you can lose sight of that. Um, I don't know. I remember earlier on this year, um, we had some really funky uh, batted ball stuff going on in the month of April. Um, mm -hmm. Giancarlo Stanton was hitting the crap out of the ball, um, but like basically mostly into the ground. And mm -hmm. uh, he and a bunch of other guys. Um, I remember. Some, for some people, this luck has leveled off in some certain ways, and some of them hasn't. Um, and it's just deeply unsatisfying to be able to go, I think, look at someone's stat cast profile and see, like, oh, look, that hard hit rate number or whatever, some other something they have coded in red um, <laughs> in, invariably, like, regardless of actual importance of number, something that, you know, can show up red and look good. You're like, oh, yeah, this guy hit ball hard. I see lots of red. He must actually still be good, and it'll all sort itself out. Or, well, whatever the conclusion you learn to be is. Um, but, you know, if if there is some sort of, like, difference, uh, I feel like it, there's a lot of people who just, like, want to just pretend that, um, you know, there has to be some fantastical, really easy to identify and fix explanation. I have wheeled myself into a position where I, uh, I have a couple things I'm looking for, like line drivery, which I know players have no control over and is basically, you know, like a lesser god in terms of, like actual production and um mm -hmm. jean carlos stanton's uh line drive rate has been very bad this year yeah uh, if you want to look for something and call it that uh and he's just been played unlucky in a lot of ways he's still hitting the ball mm -hmm. really hard right but that's not always literally it and i've often been trying to look first like why did i was on this weird like hole with uh conforto uh mm -hmm. trying to figure out like why he was so good last year against lefties and it wasn't line drive rate. And I was like, I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a break. 
because I'm not going to figure this out and I'm just going to chase down the three holes I'm most experienced at digging. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the big thing that we can really forget is that a lot of people who are kind of my shoes who like do a lot of this more for fun than like fully full time is that uh, you can be really good at digging three holes when there are probably about 30,000 you need to be good at to like really get Mm -hmm. the full picture. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure someone like you, Chris, that's higher than three but still nowhere near all of them. And probably you're probably getting even less sleep than you currently do if you were better. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, w- one of the things that I, that I think about a lot is like, um, like I'm, I like to think of myself as a, a relatively intelligent person, but I also know that I took Statistics 101 in college and I dropped it <laughs> because the midterm was on Halloween and it was a class that started at 8 o'clock. And ran until 10, and I knew I wasn't going to go. So I dropped the class. And I am uh, statistically literate, but, you know, functionally functionally pretty limited when it comes to this. I could never come up with, you know, some of the stats that a lot of people do. And, uh, you know, they're just plain smarter than me. Like, they just know more (laughs) things than I do. One thing that I... I think about a lot is like there's been so much advances, so many advances in our understanding of pitching, you know, between, you know, stuff like spin rate. And we understand that the, that how that impacts the effectiveness of certain pitches. And, and we've, we've moved so far beyond Voris McCracken and, uh, you know, dips, I think was the first, (laughs) what it was called at first defense, independent pitching stats. And, um, you know, one thing that that really I, I think about a lot is the fact that I don't know if we've actually gotten that much better at predicting pitcher performance than we were in like 2010 when we, we when we just had like FIP and ground ball rate and fly ball rate and maybe some like sort of vaguely uh, vaguely defined like hard hit versus medium hit versus soft hit mm, buckets. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we've gotten better, sure. But like when you compare the predictive value of XERA or Sierra or DRA or or any of these, you know, they can be more predictive than FIP, for instance. But like the 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 gaps between them are really small, which is wild because FIP is such a basic stat. <laughs> it's literally just three components. And yet it gets us like, it still gets us like 90% of the way to understanding, you know, like we have XERA now from, from baseball savant, right. which I think, you know, has a lot of use. I, I think it's a, a good way to understand, you know, I don't know if earned is the right term, but like, you know, I, I think it, it does a better job than FIP of telling us whether a player was lucky or unlucky so far in their results. I, I think the, yeah, I strongly the, agree there. Yeah, That's yeah. A the good data generally, it. the data generally backs up as well that it is it is a better it correlates better with current production than FIP does. Um, but it's also true that most pitchers don't have very much control over the quality of outcomes that happen when they allow a ball in play, mm-hmm. which is what Voros McCracken discovered in like what nineteen ninety seven or whatever right. it was like. And that was with none of the stats that we have available. And obviously it's not exactly like the, what Voros McCracken discovered was that 
you know, the, the idea there was that pitchers essentially have no control over outcomes. Mm. We know that's not true. Right. Mm-hmm. We know mm. Kyle Hendricks is better than Andrew Heaney when it comes yeah. to what happens when a hit, hitter puts the ball into play. Thank we you for know reaching in the right fact. direction there. There are <laughs> yeah, some those really are, bad I comparisons think, we can make because if we believe yeah. too much in our numbers, but I, I'm not going to argue with that one at all. Those are the two probably polls on this one. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but for most pitchers, most of the time, the the kind of old school stats still get us most of the way there. Yeah. And so, you know, because I'm not a, you know, because I'm not the smartest person, certainly, and I don't really understand tunneling. Like, I understand the the idea behind it, but the I have concept, no idea how yeah, to actually, right. like, put it into use and look at numbers and say, this guy's better. at Like, I just, I have no ability to <laughs> comprehend or in, like, it just, I've tried and it just, like, I like the work is amazing. Like the baseball yeah. perspectives when they came up, came out with their tunneling stats, that was like, this is incredible. And same with like seam shifted wake. It's like, I understand what you're saying. This makes perfect sense. I also don't know how to apply it. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm falling behind, but I also don't know how much functionally is being added by a lot of that stuff, which I find fascinating. Yeah. A thing that Alex fast said, we had him in your seat last week. Um, whenever mm-hmm. he was uh, talking about the choices he makes, whenever he and he wants is to. one of those people who is smarter than me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I want to I want to give him credit for doing a thing that you're also doing here. Though. So just pat yourself on the back, just a tiny bit here. Is uh, he tries to make sure that he's only grabbing pitches that are coming from the actual like same at bat. Because in his conversations with people throughout, even the, the same part of the at bat, just to jump in, he like he he was yeah. talking about how like sequential pitches, not even like the O one and the three two, like yeah, because the situation has already changed and it's not apples to apples. Sorry, yeah. Alex, but yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good jump in there. Uh, is that in a lot of these cases, a lot of these effects that we can find in aggregate, not on average, or try to demonstrate in some sort of meaningful way, might actually be just a load of crap. Um, it's really easy for people like me who can boot up, um, some statistical software and pretend that I didn't also get a C in statistics in college because <laughs> I didn't want to do the homework, um, to be clear here. Um, no, like I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest. I wish I knew a lot more about a lot of the numbers than I do. And that most of what I have wanted to learn is because I have wanted to learn it. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of people teach numbers and statistics incredibly badly, including a lot of people in baseball who are trying to convey what they're talking about. And I, I think the big thing that we miss whenever we get too observant of those things, and I've gotten too observant more than a few times, is that, yeah, you're right. The difference in actual predictiveness is not that much. Um, and most of it just comes down to eliminating a couple really dumb things. The thing that I think that you can kind of like wrap a lot of this, how to talk about stats and how to talk about players mm. smart at the same time, though, is like an understanding that these are, like you said about being hot and cold, these are human beings who do random things and they can be really hard to predict and stuff happens. Um, most of the problems that we have with stats being broken and bad, which is different from just like reaching a plateau, but like a lot of mm-hmm. the, the bad stats we consider to be good are because we don't account for choice. Um, and we pretend that people all make the same ones and they don't. Um, this yeah. is that, yeah. you know, a good example of that was I've been a big skeptic of Kevin Biggio. Um, 
<laughs> you know, I liked him. A, he was one that as a prospect, I was like, man, why isn't he ranked higher? Like his numbers are yeah. so good. It looks like he's going to be like, he walks so much. It looks like he's got power and speed. He can play multiple positions. Why is he like consistently ranked so low? And I remember someone saying at the time when he was a prospect that like there was concern that the walk rate was about uh, passivity and yeah. not plate discipline. And I was like, uh, yeah, but like that, you wouldn't see that continue as you got up the ladder. Like at some point that would be exposed. And, and what you said is like the difference between uh, choice and, and how we, we can leave that out is like, I don't actually know if Kevin Biggio has great plate discipline. I know he walks a ton. I know he's incredibly patient, but that's different than does he actually identify balls and strikes incredibly well and choose not to swing at, at balls and swing at strikes. Joey Votto does that incredibly right. well. Joey Votto is selective. He's patient, but he also knows what he's swinging at. Well, being passive and comes with a much more significant opportunity cost than being yes. like selective, right? And so if you're passing on, and this was something with Yohan Makata early on in his career, he was very similar. He had a very low swing rate. And so he didn't strike out, or he struck out a lot, but he didn't swing and miss mm -hmm. a lot. Right. And it was because he was letting a lot of good pitches go. And he got better as he became a more aggressive pitcher hitter, even though he was swinging and missing more, even though he was still striking out a lot, even though his walk rate went down, he became a better hitter because he's so naturally talented that just put actually deciding to put his physical tools into play more often made him a better player. Yeah. And Kevin Biggio, I've been always been skeptical of just because I think the, the underlying skills are very fringe. Like he's a good athlete. He's fast, but he's not in terms of his hitting. He's a kind of like a, He's very average at like a ton of things. If he made he the Mankata choice, he's not going to get the same results that Mankata got. Yeah, and he was yeah. squeezing the absolute most he could out of his skill set. And good for him, to be clear. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> right. You know, there's so many of these sorts of choices where, and I, th I think the narrative is really clear, right? It's like, mm. this dude had this batting average in the minors. And mm. now he doesn't have that batting average, but there are some homers. What if he did both? Wouldn't be, that be so cool? When the res yeah. the, the reality is, is that there is a choice. It is putting a cap on one or the other. You know, Kessler yeah. decided he wanted to stop being a patient hitter because he found out that hitting home runs was fun and was also <laughs> <laughs> moving him up some uh, to the batting order a bit. And then some pitchers figured him out, and he stopped hitting those home runs and also stopped hitting for average. You know, there were yeah, choices you one. can make, mm. and they a will lot of affect us did. things. Yeah, and um, you know, I th I think that uh, the the realization that there are new and exciting ways to be wrong about baseball players is actually probably one of the <laughs> the most fun things that I've been able to kind of pull out a lot of my wasted free time during the pandemic. Is, uh, yeah, you know, the difference between um, inching up the um, correlation in your model and figuring out why it's wrong and just reveling in the chaos is uh, it has been really fun for me personally. Yeah. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I I love going into an article with one conclusion that I want to reach and then actually digging into it and being like, oh, no, everything I thought was wrong. That's <laughs> yeah. that's not the case at all. And and sometimes I'll just write about that. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll write about like the process that got me there, what I had assumed and what, you know, went wrong, mm -hmm. what what I was wrong about in my assumptions and and how you can kind of apply that in other places.
you know, I, I that, that's one really fun. And it's also like, you don't necessarily learn, uh, in the process of doing things, you don't necessarily learn by getting everything right. Right. Every time. Cause right. if you're, if everything you're doing is right, you're probably not doing enough things that you're not good at. Uh, and, or you're covering up something that you're not right about by screaming that you're right really loudly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, to get better at things and to, to, to learn new things, you kind of have to mess up and you have to, you know, acknowledge and be able to identify the places that you're wrong and the places that you're falling short. And, um, you know, that that's important for anyone, you know, in, in, in anything really, yeah, you know, in, in any field that's important, you know, uh, if you, if you want to learn how to, you know, throw a change up and you've never thrown them in your life, you're going to have to go through a process where you throw a lot of crappy change-ups yeah, and get hit hard <laughs> right. um, before, you know, you figure it out. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a concept that applies across the board. And I think, um, you know, being wrong, one, if you write about sports, you're just going to be wrong sure. naturally. You know, it's the kind of thing that I get a lot with like, oh, but you said this. So how can like oh, you're, you, you're saying this thing that I disagree with, but you said this other thing that was wrong. And it's like, yeah, man, look how many tweets I have. <laughs> yeah, right, I have way right. too many tweets. You're going to find thousands of things I've been spectacularly wrong well, about. If, if you guys were right about every single thing all the time, you could just put a bunch of money on something and go live on an island. You wouldn't be <laughs> yeah, analyzing, like that, that, right? I mean, like it's the nature of, of trying to to predict human outcomes is it's not perfect. It's not even close to perfect. And anybody who expects it to be is just bitter about a decision that they made that they outsourced to somebody <laughs> well, else. Yeah. Right. That's that, that, but that's something I've tried to get away from in, in my fantasy writing. And I, I know we're running long, so I, I I'll try to not this time. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I'm trying to get away from writing exclusively about players. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's value in that, but generally speaking, there are very few analysts in any sport who are going to be more consistently right about players than the consensus. Yeah. You know, um, you know, obviously that is a skill that some people have. There are, there are some people who are just brilliant at getting an edge and it, but it's, it's generally going to be a small edge either way. And I, I, I think I'm self-aware enough to know that I, I'm kind of, pretty good at a lot of things as an analyst, but I, I don't think I have a consistent edge in talent evaluation. I don't think I have a consistent edge in, uh, you know, identifying breakouts. You know, I think I'm just pretty good at a lot of things. Um, but I, I think, you know, going back to the, the idea of, you know, being patient on players, not overreacting to small sample sizes and stuff like that. You know, I, I think, one place that I, I can have uh, you know somewhat of an edge is in kind of doing more of the game within a game type stuff. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't always work out. One of the things that I, you know, harped on a lot this spring was that, uh, you know, drafting injury prone players is a way to get an edge or at least a possible way <laughs> yeah. to get a big mm -hmm. edge, I guess. Yep. Um, because, you know, what we've talked about so far, how much we know now, how much, how smart the average fantasy baseball player and analyst is. 
Like it's really hard to find inefficiencies in a, in average yeah. draft position at this point. Like it's just that that was such a key part of fantasy writing when I started yeah, doing it. Right. Was like, oh, everyone's too high on this player, and now that doesn't really happen anymore. <laughs> um, you know, people aren't missing. Like there are, there aren't players that everyone's just overlooking, and so you know, one of the few places left that's not really smart, really statistically sound, really robust is injury analysis. We just kind of, we remember injuries and we say, well, that guy got hurt and that guy didn't. So player A is more likely to get hurt in the future than player B. And to a certain extent, that's true, but we treat it as if it's like a, a zero one binary. Oh yeah. When it's actually like every player has a 25% chance of ending up on the IL every given year. And, for player for pitchers, it's probably more like fifty percent for starting pitchers. I, th- I think it's actually like forty percent historically, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it's been, you know, over the last couple of seasons. Um, and so, for an injury-prone player, it might be forty percent more likely than the average, or forty percent chance that they go on the IL. And for a guy who never gets hurt, maybe it's ten percent. Um, but I think, generally speaking, betting on players who have had a lot of unrelated injuries to stay healthy is a place that you can get, you know, you'll miss, but the wins can be really, really big. Right. And my two best examples of that coming into the season were Byron Buxton and Giancarlo Stanton. So actually <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I'm an idiot. You know, it's, it's I'm still frustrated by Byron Buxton. Cause I was like, I don't, I don't love the early season victory lap. Right, right. But I was so alone or relatively alone on my Byron Buxton as a potential like super duper star who can be an MVP candidate uh, that like a lot of people were like, well, if he stays healthy, he can be pretty good, but he's not that good anyway. And I was like, no, his last two seasons, he's actually been really, really awesome. And he just hasn't been able to stay healthy. And he was that he was probably the, the front runner for AL MVP or at least in the discussion when he was healthy and then he got a hip injury for the first time in his life and then got hit in the, in the wrist by hands or on, by a pitch. So totally unrelated to his history, just more bad luck for Byron. Just you bad know, luck. It wasn't like an outfield collision. He didn't run into the wall. Yeah. It's, it's funny. So frustrating. Um, this uh, past couple of years, I've been trying to screw with the math behind how the, the fan graphs uh, auction calculator works, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And one of the things I was trying to mess with is the fact that it basically assumes uh, when you uh, draft someone, you never take them out of your lineup, and that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually, you should do this here, we're using in the future. They have a, a experimental setting that kind of half fixes it. Not perfect, but better. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things I realized, though, is the result of this, uh, you can basically figure out that like the way that we treat injury is if you think uh, Eugenio Suarez, remember he got hurt like spring training a couple years ago yeah. he like 20 games people like basically pretended as if you were going to have no one in your lineup for 20 games if you drafted yeah. him is the way that worked and it's like oh that's a market inefficiency so i yeah. built a piece of software to do the thing that you're talking about except like five percent more accurate and one of the th- interesting yeah. results here <laughs> is that um i ended up writing a bunch of tweets and talking a whole lot about how instead of drafting kevin biggio you should just draft and you would never guess who I'm going to say you should have instead of Kevin Biggio here. And of course, you know, he gets hurt. And that's how that works. So, yeah. I, I Honestly, I def- though, <laughs> I, I think Buxton you got to anyway. win there. 
if you got a if you got Buxton plus replacement level player, he's been more valuable than Kevin Biggio this season. Yeah. Yep. No no yeah, question yeah. about it. Buxton plus whoever you picked up. And and that's the whole yeah. crux of it anyway, right? All right. Well, gentlemen, uh, unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of this episode. Uh, I would love to have this go on all night, but uh, I think that's probably unfair to to you guys. And uh, so we're going to end it here. Now, Chris, I did want to ask you about Shohei Atani. So we're going to have to save that for some point in the future because I'm very interested on on how you feel about Mr. Otani, um, but uh, we'll have to circle back to good. that another time. Yeah, I, I had a feeling it was probably positive. Yeah, he's all right. Um, before we let you go, and and uh, I would be shocked if there's uh, some people out there in our audience that have no idea where to find your stuff and what you do, but if you could just uh, let people know where they can find you on Twitter and, and the, all the work that you do with CBS, uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I uh, I tweet too much at CBS. Um you may anytime I meet someone in real life and they're like, Oh, I follow you on Twitter. I'm always like, <laughs> I always forget that there are actually people reading these things. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, at C tower CBS, that was a ringing endorsement of the, my own. The skills replies as a to your tweets are one of it's my favorite been, places to go. Whenever I'm just like, want to feel better about myself as a person. It's been <laughs> a strange. disaster. <laughs> I've had, uh, I had a Tim Tebow, uh, highlight low light go viral yeah. this week and like legitimate like 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 apocalyptic street preachers like <laughs> shouting at me in my mentions i'm not exaggerating there's this one dude has just been like non-stop and like even if i block him because i use tweet deck i still see it occasionally oh yeah yeah and it just it's it's been Oh, so, yeah. so strange. Um, do, do you think um, he can do a job for um, the tri- AAA uh, Syracuse? I hear they're pretty bad. I'm sure they could use him. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, the <laughs> Mets have so many injuries right now. Maybe they wish he was still around. Um, so, yeah, may- maybe he'll get back into that. Uh, you- but, yeah, it's... um. It's been it, Twitter's an interesting place. It, it definitely, uh, it's a little bit of a, a wild west kind of spot, which yeah. is and then good and bad in a lot of a lot of different ways. And then obviously, uh, you know, CBS Sports is where I work. I've been there for almost ten years now, which is crazy. <laughs> um, I am on the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast on CBS Sports. We still we are on four times a week now. You can watch us on YouTube every evening, uh, Monday, Sunday through Thursday. Uh, at twelve thirty ish, most nights, uh, recapping the previous day, and then um, I'm also on the Fantasy Football Today podcast a couple times a week. And if you like me and you want me to keep my job, uh, subscribe to the Fantasy Football Today newsletter because that is uh, probably the main thing that I'm focused on at this point. CBSSports.com/newsletters, um, and you know you just get it in your inbox five days a week. Just click on it. You know, look at it, read it, and I think it's good. I don't know. So, you know, that's 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 it. Sounds good. Well, we'll we'll try and push that for you. Um, all right, Alex, now everybody knows where they could find Chris. Could you go ahead and let the people know where they could find us? Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at Dugout Study Hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure 
to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.